This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Nice glass, Sally. Thanks. Yeah. What are you drinking, Sally? It looks nice. I'm having a wee vodka and tonic because it's quite Oof. early evening, isn't it? Yeah. Does it slightly taper towards the top of that glass? Mm, no, they're, they're, yeah. they're the um, Soho House ones. So that's probably where uh, you recognise. Uh, oh, yeah. Bloody Soho House, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you, Sally, where are you calling from? <laughs> Caller, line one. I'm in my home in Brighton, where I have been for what seems like an eternity now. We've got to say, it's the site of Quadrophenia. The alleyway. Yeah, uh, yes. that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> John Niven, where are you? Where are you? I, I'm at my home in Buckinghamshire. <laughs> have you been working? working? Yeah, yeah, I am. I've actually been quite busy. It hasn't made a huge difference to my um, daily lifestyle, really. Like most of us imagine, it's reduced my restaurant bill substantially. My son and I have had to put a lunchtime rotor on because we got we're so sick of bumping into one another at one o'clock when we're when we're both hungry that we've started. That's become a flashpoint. That's when we start fighting. <laughs> so uh, he, so so like he has to make sure he's out of the kitchen by five to one, and I have to make sure I'm 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 in after that. The thing that really, I mean, this is nice because I, I although I, I sort of feel I know you through your your work, as they say, Sally. I'm not never. I don't think we've ever met. Actually, I really hate the fact you don't meet new people. That's what I've isolated as being the thing that really. F- I can cope with m- most of it. It's fine. It's great not having to get on the train every day. But you're a very no- gregarious man, John. Sally hates meeting people. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if I am gregarious. I'm just, I, the thought of I don't know whether I want to go back to being that person. Oh, that's an interesting. Let's let's not do backlisted. Let's have a group therapy session about the implications of that. Don't yeah. make me go back to that guy. <laughs> yeah, that's very Carew. Yeah. Well, it is very very Carew. Yeah, um, great. Shall we? Um, shall we crack on? Let's go. Shall, shall I do the thing? Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you find us at a smart party in the Dakota building in Manhattan in late 1989. It's packed, noisy and dim. Beethoven's fifth blasts out of Bose speakers. We've drunk every species of booze on offer to no discernible effect, smoked everyone else's cigarettes and we're now desperately trying to find a way to avoid talking to our son who is waiting patiently (laughs) for some quality time once we leave. There you go. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And today we're joined by a new guest, Sally Hughes, and a returning guest, John Niven, who last joined us on Backlisted number nine. Wow. Back in March 2016, nearly five years ago, when we spent a lot of time laughing at and with Martin Amos's The Information. Hello, both <laughs> of you. Thank you very much for coming. Brilliant. Hey, good and to welcome, be here. Sally. Lovely to be here. I'm very pleased to be here talking about this. 
Sally Hughes is a journalist, presenter and broadcaster specialising in beauty, women's issues and film. She's written for more or less every quality magazine and newspaper from Vogue and the Daily Telegraph to Cosmopolitan and Empire and has been beauty editor on The Guardian since 2011. She has published three best-selling books. And at this point, I have to say, I've got to issue a very specific um, thank you to Sally because my mum, we had to move my mum into a care home in February 2020. And two weeks after she moved in, the care home went into lockdown. So I've only seen her two or three times in, in the last year. Uh, but I can speak to her on the phone. She's obviously not able to do much. She's not able to leave her room very often. She's got a telly. She's got some books, but she finds it really hard to read at the moment. Um, but there is one exception. And when I said I was going to be speaking to Sally Hughes, she said, would you say to her from me that her book, Our Rainbow Queen, has been a lifesaver for me over the last year? And she wanted me to thank you specifically because she can't um, concentrate on things, but she loves reading little bits of Our Rainbow Queen, your book about the Queen that was published in 2019. And um, so my mum, listeners, thoroughly (laughs) recommends Sally Hughes' Our Rainbow Queen, a colourful and witty journey, she says, through eight decades of royal style. Uh, um, And Sally has an untitled book on its way this year. Yes. Well, it was untitled until um, a couple of days ago. Reveal. Reveal. So the next book is called Everything is Washable and Other Life Lessons. So, (laughs) Will my mum enjoy that one? Um, I don't know. It gets, it's pretty racy in parts, I think. The, The Queen book was like a sort of gift from God, really. It was like full kind of writer's brain dessert in that it was just given to me by Penguin. They'd read a column I wrote about the Queen and said we can put all the assets together. Can you just write it? So it was It was one of those that kind of didn't feel like mine, but in the best way, in the most kind of joyful way. I really enjoyed writing it. So I'm glad she enjoyed reading it. Oh, uh, let me, t- the target market, uh, you, hit, you hit the bullseye. Well done. So um, Sally's also a demon podcast, the beauty podcast uh, with Sally debuted at number one across all categories. John Niven, has no podcast. By way of contrast, was born in <laughs> was born in Irvine, Ayrshire, and worked in the music industry for a decade before leaving to write fiction. His best-selling debut novel, Kill Your Friends, was published in 2008 and later made into a feature film scripted by Niven and starring Nicholas Holt and James Corden. He has gone on to publish 10 novels, including The Second Coming, Straight White Male, and his most recent, The Fuck It List, which, John, I'm afraid my mum's still to get back to me on that one. (laughs) You and me both. (laughs) He continues to work as a screenwriter, and his latest film, The Trip, starring uh, Nemi Ripace, is that right? Number of pace, yeah. Yeah. And Axel Henney arrives on Netflix this autumn. He also writes a long-running weekly column for the Scottish Sunday Mail. And I, I think we should say, but Mitch, before I hand back to you, that Martin Amis episode, which is like five years ago, we still have people yeah. uh, pop up on Twitter talking about specifically that episode. Do you really? Because how funny it was, the actual recording of the episode. We just laughed and laughed, and we didn't really edit any of it out. We just put it out and... <laughs> So thanks again for that. No, I remember a lot of laughter. Of course, this was in the old world where we were all in the same yeah, room and room. The, pros- the prospect of the pub looming at the end of it. But no, I remember a lot of um, kind of infectious laughter 
that that afternoon. It was great. I can't actually believe it's been that long since I've had. No. In my in my mind, it was three years ago tops. But you know, I haven't um, I haven't heard that episode. But are we talking about money? Did you do money? No, we did the information. Okay. John went deep cuts for the head. So <laughs> it has a slight Karoo feeling because oh, well, spoiler alert. I should say the book that <laughs> Sally and John have chosen is Carew, the second and indeed final novel by the Serbian-born American writer Steve Tešić, a book he completed in 1996 and which was published posthumously in 1998 by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in the US and Chatter and Windus in the UK. But before we head uninsured towards the hills of Hollywood and the nemesis that inevitably awaits us, John, what have you been reading this week? Well, I've been reading this week, Andy. I've been reading a book by uh, the historian Robert Coles, who's one of my favourite British historians, wrote a brilliant biography of George Orwell, and it's called This Sporting Life, with the subtitle Sport and Liberty in England, 1760 to 1960. So now I I see you've got a copy of it there, because I think Oxford University Press rather... Uh, forgetting that you, uh, you're you just the wrong man to sell it. Forgetting to send. I'd written a whole book about how much, <laughs> how I much hate you hate sport. sport. Yeah, yeah. Sent it to me anyway, ever optimistic. Yeah, but it does look really good. I did say that, didn't I? I did say that. Be I fair. genuinely think it's a, it's a brilliant social history. I mean, you don't have to be into sport really. to, to, to it's, a, it's about English culture. Um, the, 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 the start of the book, there's a brilliant quote from Orwell which sets the tone of the book, which he said... So much a part of us that we barely notice it is an addiction to hobbies and spare time occupations, the privateness of English life. We are a nation of flower lovers, but also a nation of stamp collectors, pigeon fanciers, amateur carpenters, coupon sniffers, darts players, crossword puzzle fans. So it's eight chapters. One of the things he is brilliant historian for going into primary sources. He's been into huge numbers of libraries. He's obviously got very good, works with very good researchers. So a lot, you get that that real thrill of, of first-hand stuff. He's finding stuff that's never been seen before. Opens with a chapter on fox hunting. He goes, he goes into poaching, which is, you know, poor man's sport. He goes, he goes into the Stamford bull running, this mad fucking thing where they used to chase a, a live bull through the streets of Stamford. And, mm. and he does boxing. The, the, the stuff on, on bare-knuckle boxing, the stuff he's turned up on that is, is amazing and comes all the way through through cricket, through um, university, the, the sports and universities, through to football. And he stops, obviously, in 1960 because everything changes. The mo- modern, modern sport changes changes dramatically its cultural function changes dramatically um so i'm just rather weirdly i'm going to read from the conclusion to the book because i think if you if you're interested in it he gives a better summary than i'd be able to give so i'll just give you a quick paragraph um i set out to write this book in order to show that sport had existed at every level in every corner of the national life always to hand never without meaning Across eight chapters and a wide range of sporting experiences, from sport that cost a fortune to play, to, to, to stuff that, from sport that cost a fortune to play that cost nothing at all, I've demonstrated the depth and breadth of one of England's great civil cultures. I began thinking that sport was a minor subject, a national story, no doubt, but not the only one or the most important one. Now, at the end of the book, I think it's a major subject, not in itself perhaps, but in the way it's woven into almost everything else we do. Everything that appears in this history has been part of the ordinary life of English men and women. It might be that sport makes us happier. It might be that play makes us more sane. It might be that the Lego professor of play at Cambridge is a more important appointment than the Regis professor of history. In F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, 
Jay Gatsby calls people old sport as a mark of endearment, as a recognition that they, like him, play the game. Playing the game, enjoying the land, sensing the liberty, respecting contestation, valuing home, showing a bit of heart, recognising it in others, knowing that not everything is political or has to be, that not everyone knows what they think or whichever comes first, how to say it, and understanding above all that sport is an enduring part of our liberty, just as the we who play it is an enduring mark of our sovereignty. Writing this book has made me think our history over again. Sport has always been its own reward, and for the vast majority of who have ever played it, nothing more. I see sport now as all the more extraordinary for its ordinariness, for how it has reached into every part of our imagination. London opened its 2012 Olympic Games by calling the place we live the Isles of Wonder. This sporting life still stood for something wondrous. There you go. It's really good book. You, you really reminded me when you were reading that of a thing that our guest last time, um, the comedian Stuart Lee, said to me uh, when my book about how much I don't like sport was published. He said, he said when I read it, I, I, it made me laugh more and more every time the word, you used the word sport. <laughs> because I realised that every time you typed it out, it would have hurt a little bit more than the previous time. Right? So when you were reading out Robert Coles there, the repetition of the word sport, sport. actually does yeah. trigger me. It's, yeah. it's right. quite, but I was looking at the, the blurb here. It's really good. Why, did kill, why does killing a fox mean liberty? What, does, what did parish revels have to do with the Peterloo massacre? What did the Factory Act mean for football? So it's the relationship between English social history. It's social history. I mean, a lot of sports books are very staty. This is totally the opposite. This is Orwellian. I think that's the reason I've never really get into football, is what you just said. Because when you meet people, they start talking about who threw the, you know, throwing at the corner in the FA Cup. and they, I, I just don't have room. I've got fucking yeah. all these movies, books, music, <laughs> all that stuff. To, to know I'm that. To, I'm full up. Get fucked. There's just a room for that shit. If I was going to sell it even harder, for people who think they don't like sport, <laughs> mentioning no names, this would be a very, very good book for them to try. Ask um, me what I've been reading. I am going to ask you what. What have you been reading, Andy? <laughs> well, when you were talking about a book about sport, I had to find the antidote. Uh, vaccination against all sport. I've been reading a book by Christopher Neve called Unquiet Landscape. Places and Ideas in 20th Century British Painting. And um, now How this very was, Fotherington Thomas. I think. Indeed. And uh, this was originally published in 1990 by Faber and Faber, and it was republished last year by Thames and Hudson. And it's only 200 pages long, but it took me about 10 days to read it because it's so rich. I felt that at points I was losing my mind. <laughs> it was like a, a, a it's so beautifully written but also pursues its aesthetic beyond the logical extreme it's like it takes you on from a discussion of painting and landscape into a like a proper derangement of the senses to use the french poetry we referenced last time into a proper and and so i'm going to start by just reading this bit of the acknowledgements at the end of the book i am grateful to the first editor of this book at faber who was giles de la mare the reason I am grateful is that he forbore to say it does not always make sense. <laughs> and But in the best possible way, that's that's true. And that is why it's such a wonderful um, 
transformative book because if it played safe, it wouldn't be able to take you to the places that it does take you. So what you've got is a, a, um, a selection of essays about British and English artists of the uh, 20th century. Paul Nash, Eric Revilius, Walter Sickert, Joan Erdley, Graham Sutherland, David Jones, Winifred Nicholson, Lowry, Edward Burrow, the chapter on Edward Burrow, which is called Edward Burrow and Hysteria, is just incredible piece of writing. The starting point for, for Neve in this book is to say there is a tradition of English landscape painting stretching back several centuries in both watercolour and oil. But if we got two different artists to paint the exact same scene, we would have two radically different paintings. Because what they're really painting is uh, not the landscape. They're painting how they feel about the landscape. And how they feel about their landscape will change from one day to the next. And so uh, he ends like the introduction by writing, must we think of all landscape painting as subjects to the often ludicrous Esperanto of art history or all landscape as designated national parks? Paintings are about feelings, not rationality, about imagination, not common sense. The best I can hope to do is to discuss some of the ideas that English landscape may have given rise to and then leave it to you to look at the pictures, testing them against what you know of life and death. The landscape commits suicide every day. <laughs> you know, that's not mucking about. I Christopher Neve didn't come here to play nice, right? <laughs> He's that, I love books that lay down a challenge to the reader. And the challenge to the reader is raise your game. <laughs> raise your game. This isn't going to be um, like little uh, 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 cards that you might read next to paintings in the National Gallery. This is going to be trying to find a new and different way to illuminate um, things you think you already know. Anyway, I thought I'd just share a bit from here about um, Stanley Spencer because I thought lots of people will have, first of all, know what Stanley Spencer's paintings look like and including his paintings of landscape and flowers and scenes in Cookham, but also because this gives you a real taste of the philosophical nature of uh, Christopher Neve's writing it. Have you read this book, John, by the way? Did you read this back when it came out? No, I have it and I should read it. I know loads of people who, who are almost as manically enthusiastic about it as you are. So This was a book I needed to read now. You know, one of the, like a book at the moment you don't know you need until you stumble out across it? Yeah. That's how I felt about Unquiet Landscape. So he's writing about Spencer and he's saying that Spencer tried to just make his the source of his inspiration the village of Cookham in, in which he lived. Uh, but he had to go away from Cookham for a few years. And when he came back, he carried on painting the same stuff. Cookham had changed and he had changed. This was so much of a sadness to him that he simply chose to ignore it. The strange thing was that he could avoid without difficulty any reference to change because as well as his extraordinary memory, he had a backlog of drawings and subjects from before the war that provided him with several years of work. This couldn't last indefinitely and by 1923 he was aware that something was slipping. Never having had to question the source of his natural inspiration before because it had been around him since childhood, he began to worry that his vision might desert him. Such a man stares harder than ever. Can a child avoid relinquishing his childhood vision by refusing to get older? Now that is a question that we might ask of, for instance, the pop singer Morrissey. 
you know if you simply decide to remain 15 forever what will happen to you well morrissey is a warning to us all but just to carry on with this thing about spencer towards the end of his life it was still possible to see him painting in cookham churchyard with a notice prop beside him asking that he should not be disturbed one or two or five or seven weeks he would say as he stood on the same patch of ground Do not be misled by the fact that he disclaimed his landscape painting, that when visiting friends, he would sometimes ask to sit with his back to the window so that he did not have to look out at the view. His landscapes are the more beautiful for his contradictory attitude to them. It was the child's insistence on the continuity of the place, the refusal to let it go, that was his subject. As he said, he loved the chestnut trees for just being. To be rooted is a human need. On the evidence of the pictures, landscape was his long passion, a religious impulse quite as forceful in its way as that expressed by his notions. To give your heart to a place to this extent means that you have given a part of yourself away and are no longer complete. But to scrutinise one place this hard is to make the world in some degree intelligible. How amazing is that as a description of the artistic trade-off? Brilliant. So, uh, yeah, that's from Thames and Hudson. That's called Unquiet Landscape by Christopher Neve. Uh, If you fancy something, you know, no one's got much pressure on at the moment, have they? Um, (laughs) If you fancy something that's going to drive you even further into your own head, I strongly (laughs) recommend that. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. sound of a 1980s Olivetti electric typewriter <laughs> <laughs> brings us seamlessly into Carew by Steve Teshich. John, I'm going to ask, before I turn to our guests, I'm going to say, Mitch, had you read this before? I had not read it before. I've been vaguely aware of it when it came out. It came out in 98. And I, I, I just remember thinking I didn't, I, I just couldn't place what the book was. It's a strange title never heard of the, the guy I, I hadn't at that stage put him together with the, you know the, the film work that he'd done the, the next time I thought about it was when I got an email from Mr Niven saying have you thought about Carew for Backlisted but you did read it right I read it in proof uh before it was published uh when I was 29 years old uh, it was an extremely strange experience to read it again at the age yeah. of 52 and we'll talk about that later. So, John, you you wanted to talk about this book. When did you first read Carew by Steve Teshich? Well, the, the the vintage edition which I own was published, I think, 2006, which was the year I signed my deal with Random House for the book that became Kill Your Friends. So my, yeah. I, one of the first times I went into the office, I'd already started doing a bit of screenwriting myself, and my editor, Jason Arthur, said, I think you'll like this book. <laughs> And um, yeah, it was the shock. I, I, 
Well, a bit like you just said about what you know now that you didn't know then. I, I, as I've got further into that career, the sort of resonances of the book <laughs> have become, you know, uh, overwhelming in places. But it was just one of those novels that I just loved from the off, you know, from the moment I, I yeah, picked it and up. You, you know, and so you didn't know, really know anything about it? You just I had seen Breaking Away, which is the movie that Steve yeah. Tess got the Oscar for. Um and, but but I think I was at university when I saw that, so it was you know many years ago, um, and then I put him together with that and the the novel. But um, uh, you know, I, 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 shamefully I haven't read his other novel, Summer Crossing. Summer which Crossing. Which no. that, but um, it's just one of those novels that I sort of became quietly obsessed with, and that a lot of people haven't read. So, you know, whenever you have the chance to sort of push it in somebody, I, I do so. It has it, it's it's a book that some people absolutely love, but it's by no means an acknowledged modern classic. You know, a lot of people I I know haven't read it. Yeah, well, I, I mean, we'll talk a bit about how it was originally published here because I can remember I can remember that I can remember how they tried to and failed to publish it. So we'll so we'll talk a bit about that. Sally, where and when did you read Carew by Steve Teshich? So um, I read the book probably a couple of years ago now. So I should say that my esteemed colleague on today's podcast, John Niven, is a very good friend of mine. Um, Quite an old friend now. I was trying to work it out earlier, maybe like nine years or something. So I was booked to go on um, a good read on Radio 4. And my fellow guest uh, was a food writer who became very ill at the last minute and uh, she had to pull out and so the producers said to me do you know anybody that you could invite on who would be really good and selfishly I thought well if I ask Niv firstly we'll definitely be able to go out for a drink afterwards and that'll be fun and it'll make my trip to London worth my while Um, but secondly he's probably going to choose a book that I will quite enjoy reading because we share we right. share very similar tastes in films and, and so on. We, we very much like the same films. So I thought, well, Niv will probably choose a book that I quite fancy reading. So that's how it came to me. Niv chose Peru um, and it was sent to me by Radio 4 and I only had a couple of days to read it and I thought, well, I'll skim it or whatever. And I started to read it and I, I literally didn't put it down until yeah. I'd finished it. And I loved it so much that uh, by the end of it, I thought I'm loath to admit that the bastard has now selected one of my favourite novels. <laughs> I, mean, I think after we did that program, Sally, they had a huge run in the book, didn't they? I think it's somebody. It's like yeah. the published, it sold out. Yeah. Gets a, a big response. Uh, Radio Four. Well, if you look it up online, the number of people who say they bought it because they heard you two talking about it on a good read, and we, but me and me, me and Mitch, when you suggested it, we thought, well. They only had nine minutes to talk about it on a good read. <laughs> we can we can we can we offer can them an hour that. or more. So so that's why we were so pleased to to give you a, a a longer a longer chance on it. But also, Sally, you were saying that you found that also some people have read it because uh, because of hearing you talk about it, and they weren't so enamoured of it. Yeah. So so in preparation for this podcast, I was I was trying to um, look at various bits and pieces on the book, and I stumbled across various people saying I bought this book because of John Niven and Sally Hughes and I hate it 
wasting my life. Um, but 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 really gratifyingly, there were also some people saying, "I bought this book because of them, and I absolutely loved it, and that was the joy." Because obviously, if you just get one of those people who stumbled across it and feels the same way about it as you do, then then that's more important. So there were definitely those people too, and I'm really pleased they did have a bit of a run on it afterwards, as Niv says, and um, that's very pleasing because I think it's such an underread book and I've passed well, it on to lots of friends myself the thing about Carew is it is a proper cult novel and and there's so many attempts by publishers to create cult novels but actually real cult novels are the result of word of mouth more than they're the result of anything else and also they tend to be novels that not everybody likes they're not for everyone so I think what you want you don't want kind of blanket three-star reviews. You want a lot of five stars and Fives a lot of one-stars. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. tell you now, I found it a tougher read this time than last time. But that might be because it's 2021, not because I'm older and wiser. You don't mean stumbling over paragraphs because of the sort of the way it was written. You, you just mean the, the themes that were. Yeah, written. yeah, no, no. The, the, I'm not. I'm not criticizing the prose. I'm just my 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 uh, my ability to read something quite so um, mortifying for the main character, which we'll talk about. We'll talk about. But anyway. yeah. So, like all great cult novels, this one is very popular in France, where it became a bestseller. Yeah. <laughs> And here is the French film director Jean-Pierre Berkman just telling us in a nutshell what <laughs> Carou is about. Et euh, je voudrais parler d'un livre qui est un peu euh, mon coup de cœur, c'est Carou de Steve Tesich. Et cette histoire, je me sens évidemment très très concerné par cette histoire puisque c'est l'histoire d'un d'un script docteur et ce, ce script docteur travaille lui à Hollywood. C'est extrêmement bien écrit, c'est extrêmement drôle, c'est touchant, c'est déchirant, c'est en même temps euh, un humour corrosif, c'est une satire euh, énorme d'Hollywood. Et en même temps, c'est le, le, le grand récit de la vie d'un homme qui euh, se pose des questions sur ce qu'il a réussi et ce qu'il a raté. Une satire énorme. <laughs> du Hollywood. Yeah, I love about the clip, the French, so hostile to English words, except when they can't think of one themselves and come up with script docteur and Hollywood. <laughs> This is interesting, actually, and explains a lot, because in the run-up to uh, this podcast, because I'm in the middle of writing my own book at the moment, I thought it would be really lovely not to have to look at a book, a screen. I thought, I'll get it on audiobook, and this time I'll read it, I'll listen to it. <laughs> um, and, the, and, and the only audiobook that is available of Carew is in French. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I had to, to read it again. Oh, God. John, let me offer an English pricey of what the French film director Jean-Pierre Berkman Yeah, excuse said. my, excuse not to come off all Derek and Clive here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what kind of hellish podcast is this? Fucking comes up to me, gives it French. Basically, he says, this is a brilliant novel about Hollywood, uh, but it's also a novel about a man's whole life, about the passage of a man's entire life. And... I mean, that is one of the things I found coming back to it was I think when I read it in the 90s, 
I took it very much as the kind of uh, scabrous Hollywood film world, beautiful loser kind of text. And coming back to it this time, you know, there's so much, I mean, it's very funny, but there's so much pain in it. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, Certainly the final third of the book, no spoilers, everybody. Yeah. But, well, well, we'll come on to this. If I, let me ask you both. It's an easy, difficult question, and I'll go to you first, Sally. What is this novel about? All of the things you just mentioned, but I suppose for me it's about human beings' capacity for self-deception and... And the natural, or in this case, bizarre conclusion, where that that level of self-deception, when it is so high and so consistent and goes on for such a long time, where that self-deception can take you. Um, Carew, Saul Carew, the protagonist, really is a liar. And he is he is the he is the most pained victim of his own deception and and there's something incredibly as you say painful and tragic about that for everyone around him but mainly for him yeah mainly for him yeah yeah that's it yeah i mean it, it it's it's as it's as dark a book I'm, I'm thinking the only thing that comes as close to this is the joseph heller something happened that yeah we read which which we did on this yeah that's a very good comparison. I think. There's, there's something almost, I don't know, I'm, I'm fascinated by whether Tesic, because he was Serbian and, you know, he's had to learn English. There's something, this, this, you know, this is not a book where he's attempting to, to write clever, Bellow-esque, you know, updike paragraphs. There's a sort of a, a clarity about the prose that's just terrifying. I just, there's just The book just fell open on this thing. I was not, I realised, a human being anymore and had probably not been one for some time. I was instead some new isotope of humanity that had not yet been isolated and identified. I was a loose electron whose spin and charge and direction could be reversed at any moment by random forces outside myself. I was one of those stray bullets of our time. It's kind of stray bullets, sort mm. of terrifying vision mm. of of what is, you know, could easily be, you could say oh, it's a midlife crisis novel. It is that, but it's much it goes much, much further. Let me ask, Niven, what is it about? What do you think it's about? Well, I, I, in its simplest sense, I think it's the pain of the absentee father and the failed husband and the realisation in late middle age that those things can't be undone. Yes. That's what kind of drives the book. Mm. I think it also puts me in mind of Updike's great statement, I think, in self-consciousness about how a personality can have its ways that a mind can observe and be conscious of and know that they are damaging, but it's still powerless to change them. Yeah. That it can go yeah. along observing it and have witty and interesting things to say about that, but the behaviour that's causing the pain and damage will still continue. So I, I think, as, as, as you both made the point, he's sort of, he's somebody who, um, he, he makes the point several times in the book that when you, as a writer, as a constructor of narratives, you try to make the corners fit and the sharp edges off and everything slots together. And life isn't like that. And he, he, at some point he says, oh, sometimes he feels that all the fat and mess he's spent his professional life cutting away from screenplays <laughs> has found its way into his life. <laughs> Until he's this, this sprawling, unmanageable life that's kind of, because, you know, life is messy and has no narrative thread in the way that art does, you know? So, I, I agree. I think it's a really brilliant novel on the topic of 
first of all, professional writing, but also just the day-to-day, how we tailor our own narratives to make our lives more bearable for ourselves just in our day-to-day existence, right? The things yeah. that he doesn't want to have to deal with. Uh, he'll get to them. I'll get to them. I'll think about those things when they need, but until then, I've got to keep going. I've got to keep trucking. I've got to just keep moving forward. Yeah. And the obvious, you know, the obvious, the big obvious gag in the book is convinced he has this d- disease whereby he can no longer get drunk, no matter how much he drinks. It's phenomenal, elephant-stunning amounts of booze. But of course, you wouldn't go. He's paralytic. Yeah. You know, he, he he couches it like he does a convincing impression in the restaurant to sort of, you know, reassure everyone that he's the same old lovable drunk with no one. But he's stone cold sober as he smashes a glass and falls over his chair. And you're thinking, no, you're actually just completely pissed. I think he he is one of the all-time great unreliable narrators. He is the least reliable of narrators in literature. He's everything he says is a lie to himself and to everybody else. Yeah. You know, there's that scene, and it's not a spoiler, there's a scene where he's in the back of a taxi with his son and he has decided that he can avoid taking his son home to his place. And he's he's introduced a character, he's brought in this woman, he's brought in a taxi, he's decided it's going to be the way he needs it to be. But of course, nobody else falls into place in the way that they need to, because he thinks if he writes the script, that how it that's how it will pan out but you you know you can't nobody else around him is in on it they're all in on him but not on this sort of narrative that he's always constructing he, he's kind of like an undressed wound I think he's sort of you know he kind of he, he's like a, a wound of a person who it's gone too far it's now gangrenous and there's you know there's nothing there's no antibiotics there's no kind of ointment or balsam that can be applied to this wound and it just gets worse and worse and worse. There's no turning back. So Steve Tesich had been a very successful screenwriter in Hollywood. He won an, he, he won an Oscar in 1979 for his script for a film called Breaking Away. And he'd, he, basically, he basically had a, a script produced one a year, including an, a, an adaptation of The World According to Gart by John Irving from the late 70s to the mid 80s. And then let the record show that he that he doesn't get any more screenplays produced and um he gets plays produced and he's writing this novel in the 1990s and he he, he finishes it in um 93 94 he dies in 90 dies in 96 right and he then dies in 98. In 98 so so we can infer though we don't know for sure that his his later experience in Hollywood is the thing that's feeding into Carew. But I thought it would be really nice to hear him on top because if Carew is evidence of him, 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 his decline, as he saw it of his career, I thought this is his, this is him being introduced by Neil Simon at the Oscar ceremony in 1979. Oh, amazing. The nominees for the best screenplay written directly for the screen are All That Jazz, Story and Screenplay by Robert Allen Arthur and Bob Fosse. And Justice for All, Story and Screenplay by Valerie Curtin and Barry Levinson. Breaking Away, Story and Screenplay by Steve Tesich. The China Syndrome, Story and Screenplay by Mike Gray, T.S. Cook and James Bridges. Manhattan, story and screenplay by Woody Allen and Marshall Brickman. The winner is Steve Tesich for Breaking Away.
where's Sam? I need Sam up here. God. Uh, there's absolutely nothing I love as much as writing. To get an award for doing something you love, it seems like a luxury I never expected. Long before I actually saw America, my first glimpses of it were in a movie house in Yugoslavia. It was a Western stagecoach. And it seemed like a wonderful, endless frontier of a country where these good and evil characters fought it out for the soul of America. And after all these years of being here, I'm just so grateful to be given an opportunity to send back a film and to tell them that I find it very much like the place I had seen them originally. The good and the bad still fight it out. The good still tend to win in the end. Thank you very much. Jesus Christ, hardly a slack here, literally Manhattan, all that jazz. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was just going to say, I mean, that's, no, that's an exceptional year. It's a beautiful, beautiful film. I watched it this week. I've never seen it before. I haven't seen it in 30 years. I must yeah. see it again. It's, it's on uh, Amazon Prime. But also, like, here's the thing. So he wins the Oscar in 79. He's up against all those incredible other films. Listen how positive he sounds in that. And listen how positive he sounds about America in 1979. That's not how he feels about it when, he, when he's writing <laughs> Carew. So whatever happens to that guy... Here's the thing about the, the racket out there, the game. Uh, you can go through a very long stretch where you won't have a film made for absolutely no nothing to do with you, the quality of... You know, there's so many factors that have to come into to play to make a movie happen. And some of the best-paid guys in the business have it in a film made in 10 years. Yeah. There's so much um, money and industry to be had just from the rewriting game that the movie doesn't have to be made. As Carew says himself at one point, um, I consider the possibility as I regard the 118-page screenplay that I'm currently rewriting, that in the near future, rewriting one screenplay will provide a lifetime of work for a team of rewriters like myself, the way of the way the building of a single Gothic cathedral did for generations of medieval craftsmen. <laughs> and, I, I mean, I've done work in scripts where there's like six other writers' names on it before it comes to you, and you know, the, the, and you're getting fairly nicely remunerated. I'm sure we're not getting anything like as nicely remunerated as he was post Oscar, but you can still get through all that and not have a film made. When you write a novel, it's a fully realized piece of art in and yeah. of itself. When you're writing screenplays, you're basically you're you're designing blueprints for buildings and if the buildings are never made how does that feel after so long so i think you're right in that sense um mm. andy that mm. a sort of corrosion of the soul does start to creep in you know one thing i wanted to say about Carew is that it wasn't uh widely reviewed when it was published uh, right 
and um you can find it in sort of things like paperback roundups saying it's it's <laughs> i found one that literally said this is a very funny novel but also sad yeah. which is a cr- criti- <laughs> criticism criticism at its finest all right um, you're not date <laughs> this is the opening paragraph of the review that appeared in the new york times by um bill kent and uh, sally i might ask you to pick this up because he says to appreciate the devious timeliness of this posthumously published novel by the screenwriter and playwright Steve Teshich, we have to think back to a previous decade when the redemption story and the Hollywood hate letter had not yet become entertainment industry cliches. So he's talking about the 80s here, and he's writing in the 90s. Back then, Robert Altman's film The Player and the Coen brothers' film Barton Fink and Elmore Leonard's novel-turned movie Get Shorty hadn't told us yet how wonderfully ghastly but ultimately useful hollywood creeps could be now that is a really fair point i think with Karim, mm-hmm. that that when steve teshish is writing this that template yeah, that thing that becomes a thing in the 90s didn't uh-huh. didn't really exist I think that's really true. I think, yeah, I think that's a really good point. We're so we're so used to it now, and I think as well, just generally, we're more cynical because we have more information at our fingertips. I think at, at that point, I I imagine. So, what are we talking? Ninety eight. There was um eighty eight. There was still quite a lot of mystique still around mm. it. Um, and no, I don't think there had been such a kind of a disgusted sort of hate letter to Hollywood at that point. Yeah, I think there was a diff- very different picture by the end of the 90s to what yeah. it was in the end of the 80s in terms of seeing behind the car. I think I think it was you a know. combination of Robert Altman, but also Heidi Fleiss and all of the guys in the Heidi Fleiss world. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. and, then we, and then we started to get the sort of uh, Robert Evans books and, and all of that stuff, I think all kind of came maybe sort of five, six years later. And yeah, at that point, I don't think there was anything in, in culture about that. Mm-hmm. While we're talking about screenplays and and oh, yeah. hollywood um th- this is a clip from um Teshich on uh being interviewed by david letterman in 1982 it's a bit hissy i'm afraid but um here he is talking about what it's like writing your own stuff but adapting other people's stuff too how does one keep from getting uh miserably discouraged when you've written something you've got it neatly typed i would guess and it lays around for eight years uh well you you, you really keep writing other things because uh, if you're going to wait for that one thing to be made, and uh, the, actually I was positive nobody was going to make it because everybody had read it. It was like a library book. Mm-hmm. I would meet people say, that's a great screenplay. Why yeah. don't you write this other thing for us? Uh-huh. And you kept wondering if it's so great, why don't they make it? You know, but they, somehow nobody could see a film in it. Now, Garp was, of course, not written by you. Was that difficult to adapt to somebody else's novel to a screenplay? Uh, I would love to say how hard it was because, you know, people want to hear that and then I come off sounding really good. But it was easy. Hmm. It's a terrible thing to admit. It was just wonderfully easy to write it. I saw how to do it and I was so excited. I sat down. Next thing I knew it was finished. Did you have uh, lengthy discussions uh, with the author of that or the people producing the movie? Uh, I would not call them lengthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like stealing, isn't it? Uh, actually, we didn't have a discussion. Uh, <laughs> they, they do know you did it, though, huh? Uh, <laughs> when I finished the screenplay, I sent it to John Irving, but uh-huh. uh, I, I really couldn't um, see having a discussion with anybody until I finished writing it. 
It is a wonderful film. Yeah. I've seen it eight times, and George Roy Hill, uh, <laughs> I have, and, uh, because I kept, I kept waiting for it not, not to be as good as the last time. Yeah. And it's just gorgeous film. Uh, it's a pleasure meeting you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Stephen Peckett. Uh, we'll be right back with a tour of NBC. Ah, the days when they had novelists and screenwriters and primetime talk shows. <laughs> I was just thinking exactly that. I was thinking, what the, I was just thinking, what, what the hell? So what the hell is a screenwriter doing on David Letterman? That's such an anathema now. Yeah. I can't yeah. imagine it. And now some fucker who fires ping pong balls out their anus in YouTube. <laughs> Time permitting, Oscar-winning screenwriter. <laughs> but I'm having real difficulty trying to fit. The, the, the Teshitz who, who wrote Breaking Away, he seems like a kind of modest, uh, well-adjusted, positive human. It's quite hard to think that somewhere lurking well, in, yeah. in, that, in that human being is Saul Carew. But actually, I found it fascinating because it reminded me how brilliant Letterman was. And yeah. it still can, still can be, in fact, but he's so good in that. He's so nimble in that. Um, Sally, do you want to read us a bit? Yeah. So uh, Saul, our protagonist, Saul Carew, is having lunch with his ex-wife. I say ex-wife, they separated two years ago, and they're now in this sort of new kind of marriage where they are (laughs) separated, but they meet up all the time. She absolutely loathes him. He thinks she finds it sort of charming and she cares. And then they're both stuck in this very dysfunctional dynamic. So they meet in the same (laughs) restaurant a couple of times a month, I think. And they share this adopted son called Billy. My bourbon arrives. I don't need this drink. What I need is to get drunk. But since I can no longer get drunk, it would be very easy for me to give up drinking altogether. Although I no longer love Diana, I haven't got the heart to hurt her. And it would hurt her if I stopped drinking. She has invested so much time and energy popularising the myth that it was my alcoholism that was responsible for our wrecked marriage, that to give up drinking now would almost seem vindictive. For me to show any personal improvement after our failed marriage would border on being spiteful. (laughs) Although I'm riddled with diseases and reprehensible traits, spite is not one of them. So I know that the best thing I can do for her is to uphold the myth that I'm a hopeless drunk. I feel I owe her that much. So I drink my drink. It's it's like, (laughs) do you know that phrase, angry logic? Angry logic. I was thinking of that a lot while while I was rereading this, you know. The bit you just read, that's what that's all about. It's going... I think this, therefore I think this. So, so, so this is the thing, that the knots that this character ties himself in to get to something, to get to a truth that he, that his palate will accept is, is really painful, as one of you yeah. said earlier. It's sort of, it makes me feel quite tense sometimes to kind of see his workings of how he gets, <laughs> of how, how he gets, because you do, this book shows you his workings at all time, times. And to follow his workings to get to a truth that he can live with, it makes you squirm. And that's obviously very funny. He's convinced himself that he could easily stop drinking. He can't stop drinking because that would be mean to the ex-wife who was destroyed by his drinking. It's so mental. Um, but he does this all the time. But I think the kernel of truth in it is we don't like other people to change. When you meet your friend who's a renowned party animal, the last thing you want to see is that 
guy sober drinking a glass of mineral water, having lost loads of weight and looking really healthy while you're sitting there a reeking wreck. You want him in the pit with you, you know? So uh, There's that scene at the very beginning, the, the, the first part of the book, there's an extended with, scene. With, with Guido at the Russian Tea Room. Yeah, there's, there's yeah. this amazing extended scene of a New York literary party. and I'm... It's one of the best openings to a novel ever, I think. Absolute bravura, kind of every, every, yes. brilliant, brilliant first chapter. I think, Niv, similarly to me, I'm just a real sucker for that New York literary kind of 70s and 80s, in particular kind of Woody Allen, Nora mm. Ephron. Bit, bit, bit Eastern Ellis. And, and yes, Carl Bernstein yeah. and Tina Brown, all of that. I, you know, I love that stuff. I'll take all of that you've got. So the, there's a party scene that's very much in that world. The Berlin Wall has come down, Ceausescu's <laughs> dead, and all of that stuff. And um, he talks about the fact that he gave up smoking yesterday, and he's definitely, definitely, definitely given up smoking. And then, of course, he starts smoking at the party, and everyone is relieved. As Nib says, yeah. you know, everyone is relieved. He's smoking again. And now, the, you know, the truth that they know, they can continue to look down their noses at him at what a terrible, reprehensible yeah. loser he is. And it's a 30-page opening scene, we should say. It's a cool, as John says, very bravura sort of open this enormous jungly apartment in the Dakota building. It's steady cam, isn't it? It's a steady cam, single shot kind of opening. To you want to be there, don't you? You just yeah. want to beam yourself into that party. It's like the ultimate thing. When Saul Carew is, uh, even at his most dysfunctional, for the vast majority of the novel, even at his most morally reprehensible, his ability to read a scene is absolutely right. He can see how it will play. It's like the screenwriting discipline has eaten into his face, isn't it? <laughs> it's like eroded his, his ability to, to form meaningful human relations. I think one of the most powerful things about the book, and you can say this without it being a spoiler, is that Saul sets in motion a chain of events which the reader can see the tragedy <laughs> of a hundred miles it's down true. the road telegraph but very before he can. You, yeah. you, you, I mean, very early on, we're in the hall, they're in the holiday in Spain or whatever, and you're kind of going, oh, God, that, oh, no, 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 no. I can see where this is going. This cannot happen. And, and the, the character... Yeah, the character is oblivious for at least another 150 pages of where it goes. He, he is. The reader can see it from space, right? So, of course, you know what's going to happen. But as it dawns on him way, way, way too late, he almost literally goes, la, 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 can't hear you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he get, he goes into extreme denial, doesn't he? And he makes he makes the decision to stop himself from finding out mm. what we can all see coming to devastating consequences yeah there's a brilliant essay which we're going to put a link on the website to by michael bywater which i'll just read you one paragraph of which is which talks about the thing you just the thing you've both been talking about the idea of carew for something that starts off as kind of like a flip hollywood comedy and ends up as an aristotelian tragedy right and michael bywater says not only is carew in truth a tragedy and distinguishing tragedy from comedy by mere plot delineation is one of the hardest tricks in the critical book. It's also a meta-tragedy. It's a tragedy about a tragedy. Yeah. Carew is himself in many ways the perfect Aristotelian tragic hero. Neither, quotes preeminent in virtue and justice, nor guilty of vice and depravity, but rather of hubris, which lead, in turn leads him to an act of homatia, a simple mistake, a missing of the target. 
and all the tragic plot developments fall out from that. And what's so interesting is the difference between, if you look at Steve Tessich's screenplays, they're all pretty much in the kind of new cinema social realist bracket. What they aren't and is pretty anything sunny. like this novel. No. Right? I mean, the depth of the novel and the range of reference in the novel is not something that... So what happened to him between 1985 and 1990 is the biographical chunk, which we, which we don't know. But, but clearly there's a kind of a summoning of energy, even if it's dark energy, in that time to then pour into Carew. Yeah. I, I, I think, as you alluded to earlier, he might have had this novel in him for a long time and had um, not attempted it for either the fear of not being equal to it or because he was making a lot of money doing other stuff. And the kind of cost of that comes through the book too, doesn't it? Cause... I, I get a strong feeling that he knew he was dying when he wrote that final... That, 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 that the, final section you want, yeah. yeah. What was a heart attack, though, wasn't it? Yeah, well, maybe I don't know. It, that's even more remarkable because it, it feels it, it feels laden with it, it, it does. existential kind of settling of scores, and this is what I really think. Finally, yeah, you got to the end of that final that final chapter, and you found out he'd had cancer for a year. They've been like, oh yeah, I get it. Um, Niv, have you got a bit to share with us now? Yeah, I was going to read a bit from quite early in the novel where he sort of describes his what he does for a living. And there's a couple of little things in here, I think, that sort of explain, help explain part of his character. Um, Okay. I have never written anything of my own. A long, long time ago, I tried. But after several attempts, I gave up. I may be a hack, but I do know what talent is, and I knew I didn't have it. It was not a devastating realisation. It was more in the nature of a verification of what I'd suspected all along. I had a PhD in comparative lit. I was a doc to begin with, but I didn't want to teach. Thanks to some contacts I made, I segued painlessly into my true calling, where for the most part, I rewrite screenplays written by men and women who don't have any talent either. Every now and then, very rarely of course, I'm given a screenplay to fix that doesn't need any fixing. It's just fine the way it is. All it really needs is to be made properly into a film. But the studio executives or the producers or the stars or the directors have other ideas. I am confronted with a moral dilemma. I am capable of having a moral dilemma because I have this mascot within me called the moral man. And the moral man within me wants to stand up for what's right. He wants to defend the script that doesn't need fixing from being fixed. Or, if nothing else, he wants to refuse to be personally involved in any way in its evisceration. But he does neither. The moral man within me feels uncomfortable and pretentious at these times. He feels, as I do, the burden of precedence we have set for ourselves. Why should we stand up now for what's right when we remain comfortably seated on other, much more crucial occasions? In this way, the moral dilemma becomes diluted and rationalised, and I accept the assignments and the money that comes with it, huge, enormous sums of money, knowing ahead of time that my contribution, my rewriting, my cutting and polishing can only cause harm or ruin to the work in question. These occasions when I'm giving something I admire to ruin are fortunately very rare. In the last 20 years or so, I have eviscerated no more than half a dozen screenplays. And of, of those, only one still haunts me. Oh, it's so good, isn't it? It's like all the rhythm of the comic prose as well, you know. Oh, yeah, it's perfectly weighted, you know. Um, and the kind of, that realisation in there that, you know, 
And there's another point later in the book where he sort of compares what he does to um, Nazi doctors. That you're <laughs> kind of, right. you, 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 you have the term a script doctor, but sometimes you're performing unnecessary surgery and completely healthy patients. We probably should say that you know for people who haven't read the book, and we we haven't we're not doing well, we we're not doing a blurb, are we, Andy? I'll read the blurb right now. I, we've pretty much covered it. Oscar-winning writer Steve Teshich masterfully creates and destroys the sad, mad world of Saul Carew. Uh, Carew is an alcoholic who can't get drunk, a loving father who can't bear to be alone with his son, a fixture of film scripts who admits that he ruins every one of them. Calamity and comedy accompany Saul oh dear, on his odyssey <laughs> through sex, death and show business as he seeks to fix both the master director's greatest film and his own broken life at the same time. I'd like to ask Sally about something to do with this book. The stuff about family in here. I found it hard to diagnose his problem, unlike him. What's his problem? That he can't form intimate connections with people? That, that he's drunk all the time? That no, he's drunk all the time because he can't form intimate connections with people. I think, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the intimacy is the real issue, isn't it? His total inability to to relate to other human beings, especially other human beings with whom he has a kind of emotional tie. He has this very strange dynamic with his son where he sort of worships his son and boasts about his son, this incredibly handsome boy who's at Harvard that mm. all women mm. fancy and all men love. And he really boasts about him, but cannot bear to be in his company without yeah, anybody yeah. else. will do anything not to be alone with his son. We'll, we'll, we'll do anything to the point where he's incredibly abusive and cruel. Um, in yeah. his in his yeah. avoidance of his son, obviously his marriage is wrecked. Um, the 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 romantic relationship he has in the book is a sort of fetishistic and vain relationship, really. From his point of view, it's really got nothing to do with the woman um, involved, mm. and so he's just completely in, a, in unable to form connections with people. I suppose from my point, from a family point of view, I, I find the family stuff really really moving in it. Um, I had an absent. Uh, parent I was raised by my father and that you know and that was a, a very difficult thing not my father but but the absent mother and um I you know you I really feel for Billy I yeah. I really really feel for Billy but then mm. I also feel for Karu when he goes home as well um it it's very it's very complex his relationship with family and intimacy generally is really complex and his fear makes him very abusive which isn't doesn't excuse his abuse in any way shape or form he is cruel and he is abusive but as the reader you're privy to the fact that that is completely driven by fear and ineptitude on his part and he chooses to overlook his cruelty as his coping mechanism yeah as his coping mechanism right and also is always looking for the way to frame it that's the thing isn't it that's the that's the hollywood's but or may not be. It might be why he's good in Hollywood rather than the Hollywood thing working the other way round. He, yeah, he he always be editing. That's for sure. So I'm going to ask Sally to read what uh, what all right thinking people agree is the uh, prose high point of this <laughs> this excruciatingly distressing novel. Um, I'd like to ask Niven. Niven, is that John? Is that? I'll ask. No, all of you. When I came back to this rereading it, thinking this is such a strange novel, because in some ways it's very of the 1990s. You know, I think there are things in here which are not fatally dated, but they are quite dated. And some of the things that Sally was speaking about there, certain attitudes I think are more problematic now than they 
than they might have been back then. How do you mean? I think there's a kind of male centeredness about the, the the novel, about Saul Carew's, and I, I appreciate this. This doesn't come without many layers of irony built into the novel, but that kind of post Roth DeLillo Updike, poor me, the poor middle aged man, poor me, using all these people. And I'm playing devil's advocate here because because I'm not saying that we should consign it to the 90s. Well, that's not, as, what, I mean. that's as not as what I mean. But as I, as I often say in my own writing career, who will speak for us? We just have <laughs> we, we just yeah. haven't we just yeah. haven't a voice in the novel for centuries. <laughs> but I, I guess what I mean is I don't think it would be written quite like this now. I think it would be harder to write this novel now. I hear what you're saying. I don't think it's the most offensive novel you could pluck from that time period it was published within a few years of american cycle let's don't forget it was probably at the tail end of that universe you talk about andy which if you say began with the likes of updike and bellow and all the way through to john irving richard ford richard ford which kind of the the the, it's at the end of that straight white male period of domination things are about to change you know I, if I may, as, as, <laughs> as, as the woman on this podcast, I do not find it problematic. Uh, the, the, reason, the reason I don't is that for me, well, first of all, there's at no point are you not on the side of the woman in any scene involving her. You're always on the side of the woman. And I, true, yeah. and I think, yeah. and at no point is the character offered up as any kind of hero other than an anti-hero to you. And it also shows the havoc that is wreaked by a bad man, right? By a, yeah, a, yeah. A, a, bad, a bad white man with a little bit of money and a platform can wreak absolute havoc in people's lives, and he does. And it also shows that, you know, the danger and destruction of an absentee father as well. So I actually think, although it is very male-centred, I think it focuses on the uncomfortable things um, yeah, about yeah. men in a way that is quite important, I think, and it doesn't. I don't find it problematic. Yes, you're absolutely right. It would be written differently now, but that doesn't mean to say there's anything wrong with how it was written. Absolutely. Um, well, then, please, please read us the, the heartwarming scene with his mother. So, so this bit is in the last third of the book. So, so the first passage I wrote was written in the first person. This is written in the third person because there is a big gear change. And this is when Saul Carew, after a fairly life-changing event, retreats to his mother's house where he never, ever, ever visited. His father has been dead a couple of years, I think, and just his mother is there living alone. Saul sits at the dining room table, eating his lamb stew out of a deep soup bowl. His mother stands not far away and watches him eat. It was still light when he arrived and now it's dark. Through the windows of the dining room, illuminated by street lamps and the headlights of passing cars, he can see the snow falling, swirling, accumulating. It's really coming down, his mother says, which is what he was going to say. Looks like it's going to snow all night, he says instead. You think so? Sure, looks like it. The TV, which had been on in the living room when he arrived, is still on. He knows if he weren't here, his mother would be there watching it. The lamb stew is terrible. (laughs) He can't figure out what makes it so terrible. It's tastelessness or some subtle taste that it has. But something is terribly wrong with it. She goes back to looking out the window to watching him eat. 
How is it? The lamb stew? It's wonderful. There's plenty more. There was a time, Saul thinks, when his mother was a wonderful cook and an immaculate housekeeper and a woman who took great pride in her appearance. Now she's no longer any of those things. Saul wonders, as he eats his lamb stew, if she's aware of this decline or not. Signs of neglect are everywhere. You don't have to look for them to see them. You have to keep looking away in order not to. His silverware and his soup bowl contain remnants of former meals upon them. The dish towel his mother is now worrying with her hands as if it were a rosary is filthy. The furnace keeps coming on and each time it does, the air of, out of the registers blows little clumps of lint across the floor. Little lint creatures scurrying about like mice. The house of Carew, Saul thinks to himself. He drains the dirty glass of water and his mother, eager for an activity, almost snatches it out of his hands and heads towards the kitchen to refill it. Although he has enough unresolved problems in his life to last him several lifetimes, he casts a scholarly glance at his mother's departing feet and attempts <laughs> yet again to figure out how it's possible for this wisp of an old woman to make such a racket when she walks and on slippered feet. The closest he can come to an explanation is that his mother snaps her feet downward at the last split second prior to contact with the floor, the way a baseball slugger snaps his wrist to crush a Grand Slam home run, impossible to see with the naked human eye. She stands by the sink, glass in hand, and lets the water run, feeling it with her finger. Saul looks at her, at his mother, in profile, at the dirty bathrobe she's wearing, bought in some tourist shop in Santa Fe during a trip she and his father took over a decade ago. Geometric Indian pattern on it. The patterns and the colours were once distinct. Now they are a smudge. It fit her once. Way too big now. It goes on for another couple of pages and it's amazing. It is utterly brilliant writing. It's the grimmest moment in the book up to that point, isn't it? Yeah. And, I've, and, and I think because you're kind of praying at that juncture without any spoilers, a lot of bad stuff's just happened. And you're internally you're praying that this scene with his mother will over, offer some kind of warmth or redemption. But I've got to say, anybody who has elderly relatives, yeah. you know, that, the clarity with which he sees Spot that on. is so precise and yeah. unforgiving and clear-eyed. This, yeah. this, for me, is why that passage is so brilliant, because everybody who is of a certain age and has been away from home for decades, everybody knows that you catch yourself, right? On moments you go home, you catch yourself being disapproving or critical or slightly appalled by something in the house or something you're eating and you catch yourself and you're kind of disgusted with yourself, right? You catch yourself hating the stew or whatever it is or noticing yeah. that the dishes are dirty and, and, and you know in that moment how disgusting and appalling and ungrateful you seem. And it's, yeah. it's mortifying. And it's such an uncomfortable feeling. And then in that passage, there are, pay I did one and a half pages there, but there are maybe five pages of it. And it's so forensic in its observation. Yeah. And it right. all feels so true. He wishes she wouldn't watch him eat. He wishes she had to go to the bathroom. He wishes she would get one of her phone calls. <laughs> I mean, the, that's the laser-like specificity of it. When I read this in the late 90s, I... Love the first two thirds, three quarters of the book. 
And then I thought the ending didn't work. Uh, we won't spoil the ending. That was not my experience reading it again now. Good. I had a totally different experience Good. this time. That the 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 gear change for me really makes the makes the novel coming back to it as a as an older reader, and I, I wondered how you felt about that change of tone and pace towards the end of the book. He does a thing that a lot of great novelists do. He reaches for his high style in the final 20, 30 pages, yeah. and it really is someone at full stretch. You know, you see it in Update, you see it in Richard Ford. The, the last sort of Philip British Nelson's Lunar Park, the last sort of half dozen pages are written in this at, the, at your absolute maximum sort of pitch. And it's just the book becomes something else. And as you say, Andy, it, it, it's a completely different experience reading that in your 50s to what it is reading in your, your 20s, you know? What's very interesting about that last third is, and again, I'm not spoiling it, but when Saul is at his most broken and most vulnerable, I feel that Teshich becomes his most vulnerable as a writer. He absolutely yeah. gets his ball, yeah. he gets his balls out yeah. and puts them on the table, mm-hmm. and it's and I there's something really wonderful about that because whereas Karu can never face up to that kind of vulnerability and hides from it, I feel like that the, the writer hands his vulnerability to you to do with it what you will. And I think that it's incredibly admirable. I love the gear change. I love the switch. And uh, as Niv says, that very kind of high style, I, I admire the courage of it. We can sail on no longer. <laughs> Huge thanks to Sally and John for taking us on the wild, increasingly sad, but also increasingly magnificent ride of Steve Tesich's final creation. To Nikki for doctoring our individual scripts into a seamless hole and to Unbound for hiring the stretch limo. You can download all 129 previous episodes of Batlisted, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website at batlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and now in sound and pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted. We aim to survive without paid for advertising. Your generosity helps us do that. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early. And for a fraction of the price of a Bloody Mary at the Cafe Luxembourg, they get two extra lot listed a month. Our very own writer's room where we hang out, drink, pretend to smoke and shoot the crap about movies, tunes and even sometimes books. Lot listeners also get to hear their names read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. And this week's batch are... Di McCauley, Hamish Fletcher, Mary Grace McGeehan, Molly Harbage, Mark Jerry, Katie, Robert Summers, Karen Cooper, Janice McGrath, Julie Crofts, Joe DeBank and Jackie Morris. Thanks, Thanks Jackie. Jackie. Oh, uh, Sharon Litvin, Matthew Horton, Poppy Fee, Falconer, capital letters, Eric Gaines, Beth Bonini, Kim Tester, Michelle Churcher-White, Michael Walters, Laura Wirtz, Angela Sykes, Rosie Edser, Gabe Cortez and Mike Shuttleworth. Thanks very much, all of you. Yeah, and we'll be back in a fortnight. Thank you for listening. And thanks again to Sally and John. I mean, if we haven't made the case, I, I think we, I hope we've made the case. This is, I do think this is an absolutely magnificent novel. Sally and John, thank you so much. Thank you guys. That was amazing. Thank, thank you for having us, man. It was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs>